radicalized. Everybody say radicalized. Okay, I'm supposed to be careful uh, not to skip um, blanks. I don't know if I've skipped blanks in the past, but just willy-nilly throwing blanks around. But I'll be careful, um, and I'll, I'll try to make sure I'm staying on the, in the right places, in the right spots. The definition of this word is to cause someone to adopt radical positions on political or social issues. To shift person or group's opinions toward either end of a political spectrum. To become radicalized is to move from talk to action. From just talking to action. From just saying, I gotcha, believe that, to doing something about it. From sitting to walking, from thinking to behaving. It's a shift from previously thinking and agreeing with someone about something important, such as nodding your head in agreement, uh huh, and even being part of a group. I'm a part of the group. Yeah, I'm part of this church. I'm part of the people. I do this. I'm part of that. I, I go there. I'm part of that Bible study. I, yeah, sure. To instead actually acting on what you have only talked about before. It is really doing it, getting out there, putting the words in action. Typically, this word, that radicalized word, you'll find that one, it's used when someone becomes violent or is willing to lose their life for a cause. To lose their life. I I can't think of anyone that would pay a higher price for anything than to lose your life. That's the highest price you can pay. Nothing. There's no money or time or energy or anything you can give that's higher than your whole life. Or when someone has convinced this person beyond just being a bystander. So the, the talk to action, that first line you have, that first one, that is the thumbprint, if you will, of the entire conversation. That's everything here. That's a summation. That's where I'm going. That's a whole, if I lose you anywhere along the way, go back to that. That's exactly the starting point from talk to action. Radicalization is a process by which an individual or group comes to adopt increasingly extreme, say extreme, political, social, or, and my ears perk up when I heard this one, religious ideals and aspirations. Now, these are those that reject or undermine the status quo of contemporary ideas and expressions of the nation. I'm going to take that paragraph and make it, squish it, and make it better. Radicalization, therefore, is when someone says, I believe something that everyone else thinks is just okay. I believe it's not okay. Or I'm not willing to just sit by anymore. Or I'm not willing to just let it go on. I'm not willing to just be a part. Or I'm not willing to just be, be in the, you know, just sit here somewhere and be a bystander. It, it, it makes them move beyond bystander to get on the field. This can be a nonviolent action, however, and it's important to know that. Like when, when someone, our group, refuses to let things stay the same way and are willing, that's the big one, they're willing to disrupt life in order for change to occur. That's a big thing. Think about that. They're willing to disrupt life 
for change to occur. That's enough. Whatever that is, they said, that's enough. I don't care. Wilberforce, he was the man that every year for 18 years proposed into the British parliamentary to end slavery. He had come to that conclusion so many years ago that this was evil and against the ways of God and attempted to fight it even though he was ridiculed. Every year it was denied. And finally on the year, like the, a few days before he died, it was finally passed. Something happened in him that said, even though this is how everyone operates and how every, every business owner had come to him and said, stop and calm down because we need, we need these slaves for business or you're going to mess up the entire British uh, way of life and how we move goods back and forth. He said, I don't care. I've come to the point where I will disrupt life for this to change. And even though you could say he was a failure, Time and time and time and time and time and time again. I can't think right now. It's in the teens, at least, maybe 18 times that he was denied and said no. He was not a failure because eventually there was a change. Something happened. He was radicalized by, from just being a normal lawmaker and just doing his job and not worrying about life to going to extreme action where society looked badly on him until there was a change. So this, this story grabbed me. It grabbed me years ago, and this message has been percolating in my brain for years, for two years at least. I've been thinking about it. It just really grabbed me. If you Google radicalization, you'll find lots of stories. People in um, prisons that were radicalized, you'll find the comment there. People from other, uh, they've gone to uh, extreme mosques. That were radicalized people, etc. But this one phrase I've never found anywhere else. In the 2015 San Bernardino attack in California, 14 people were killed. 22 others were seriously injured at the Inland Regional Center, a state-run facility that serves people with developmental disabilities. Police say the shooting took place during a training session. I've watched numerous news clips and read um, copious material on this one to find out there actually was a holiday party planned after it. That's why you'll see sometimes news say holiday party and sometimes say training session. Um, And the holiday party might have been a trigger. And this shooting lasted only a few minutes before the suspect fled. A married couple, Syed Rizwan Farouk, a 20-year-old county health inspector, and his wife, Tashfeen Malik, 29, fired more than 100 rifle rounds. That number grew through the years. It was 75 and then later 100. Investigators believe, it's, think it's possible, now here's the sentence that caught me, that I never found anywhere else, that she radicalized her American-born husband and was the driving force, that she got him to be this person. His family, and you can watch the, the news, Say he loved to work on cars with other guys in the neighborhood. His friend said he came to the mosque every day for prayer. And then one day he stopped coming for prayer anymore. He stopped coming to the mosque. He stopped being his normal, usual self. They say that she changed him and that he married a terrorist. She was from Pakistan. He was born in California. She pledged allegiance to the Islamic State in a Facebook post. 
She left her six-month-old baby with his grandmother on the day that they decided to act. When the police raided their home, they found 12 completed pipe bombs and a stockpile of thousands of rounds of ammunition that the couple were not able to use, of course, because they were killed. And who knows what that were, was going to happen. The older sister, his older sister, check that out, not hers, his, said, what kind of parent makes plans to abandon their child? Told the Washington Post recently, how were they capable of something like that? And we didn't know it. Before you turn past that, I don't know where you're at on your page. Hold on. Look at that again. Look at that. That is exactly what caught my attention. This guy was okay serving his God. I don't know anybody in this church that comes here and prays in this church every single day. But that, he was all right with that. He was okay working on cars. He was all right with his job. He was okay with life. Something happened to her. Her belief was different than his, and she moved him beyond just not ruffling feathers, just living life, as your, as your Muslim belief, I suppose how you're supposed to say it, and just being okay to not being okay, to acting. Now, of course, Christ doesn't call us to radicalization of hurting people, quite the opposite. But I'm thinking about that. When I read that story, I thought, what if that was a story of Christianity? From going from just don't say anything hurtful, don't be mean, don't step out of line, have your faith, do your thing, but just, you know, have job and friends and life and don't ruffle feathers, don't make anybody uncomfortable, and just be okay until a radicalization process happens where it goes from beyond just normal to action, where it goes from just sitting in agreement to getting up and walking, where it goes from this is just how life is, to I'm done. That's enough. Do you see what I'm saying? That, that caught me. Woo! That was like, wow, I can't imagine that. I've never read before where she radicalized her husband. That's the first time I ever saw that. So let's go to counterculture. Countercultural. Countercultural. The definition is a subculture whose values and norms of behavior differ substantially from those of a mainstream society. Often in opposition, that means going the other direction, to the mainstream cultural mores, or the cultural and lifestyle of those people, especially among the young, who reject and oppose the dominant values and behavior of society. I've often thought about the Christian life like a current. There's a current that we, we're, that we don't even see. It's a Bible sometimes talks about the, the prince of the power of the air. There's a movement of the, of the air. And as long as you're going downstream, it's amazing how wonderful things are. There's no fight. There's no fuss. Of course, that's where the dead fish go, though, too. They also go downstream. But once you turn around, even if it's a, a small creek or a small little body of water, even hitting your knees or your thighs, you feel pressure immediately. If it's strong enough, it'll drive you backwards. And if it's, if it's up to your chest, it'll take all of your power just to stand still. That is the, the, the best description I can think of of the day we're living in right now. If you're going to stand for the Lord and turn around and just stand still, maybe not make much progress, you'll feel a pressure against you, Right? This world is no longer okay with you just let live and, 
and you do your thing, I'll do my thing. They're now a pressure pushing us to change, pushing us to abandon the, the basic tenets of Christianity, pushing us to abandon the things of God that make sense, the things that are that godly. That pressure, you feel that. And that is exactly what, that's exactly what cult, countercultural is. That's the best definition. Countercultural is turning, even in opposition, and saying, no, we're not going to do that. Now think about this. I love this concept. Think about these social groups, ancient ones found in the Old Testament. I found them mentioned many places in the first five books for sure, or the Pentateuch. The Hittites, the Parasites. Parasites? I think that's right. That sounds like a parasite. Ammonites, <laughs> the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, and the Hebrews, or as it later became called, the Jews. Here's a great question. Now, where are those other people? Who today do we find that says, I am an Ammonite, or my, I'm a part of the family of the Hittites, or I'm even part of the Babylonians? You can't find them. But I can find Jews. I can find Jewish people. The Jewish people have been persecuted for about 700 years by the time of Christ by the Babylonians, then the Assyrians, then the Persians, and finally by the Greeks, and especially the Romans when Jesus was born. So why don't we see any of those other groups of people still around except for the Jews? Where did they go? Where are they at? Maybe they're part of your great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers. I don't know. They were captured by the nations. They intermarried with them, right? And they lost their national identity. See, identity. They lost it. This is an interview I found with J.P. Moreland, Ph.D., from The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Didn't the same things happen to the Jewish people? Weren't they captured? Second Kings. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he said by all his servants and prophets. So was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria under this day. And then eight chapters later, again this happens. And the king of Babylon smote them and slew them at Riblah to the land of Hamath. So Judah was carried away out of the land. That's both groups there. That's the ten tribes and the two tribes, right? And then Jeremiah 29. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto the residue. That means those whoever's left over of the elders, which are carried away captives, and to the priests, the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon. So if the Jewish people experienced this, and they did over and over and over again, because God said, you refuse to listen to me. You refused to stop sinning. You've done things that are so evil. God said, they never came into my mind, which is crazy to think about. God saying, I never thought of that. It never came to my mind to make to take children and sacrifice them to gods. That never came to my mind, God said. So he said, you know what? You're going to be captured by other nations. And so you learn that I am the God that loves you, and, and these ways are evil, horrible in my sight. It never came to my mind. So if that happened to them, then why didn't they lose their identity like everybody else? They had directions, instructions, statues, the Bible calls it, given to them from God, that made a Jewish person a Jew, right? To them, it was very important. Say very important. You don't mean it. Say very important. Okay, some of you are meaning it. Wow. 
to keep the Sabbath day in their synagogue meetings every Saturday, to reinforce the, tr- the rituals, to talk about their lineage so their sons and daughters knew the names of their grandparents and their great-grandparents and so on and so on and so on. Many times in the Bible you'll find them have their list of one, two, three, four, five, six generations back. It's incredible. I don't know anybody here that can name their grandparents and their names of their grandparents and the names of those grandparents. That's amazing. It takes a lot of work even for a few of us to dig it out. But this was something that they had to say. The kids had to memorize. They had to know because that's their lineage. They've got to know it. Otherwise, there'd be no Jews left very soon if they stopped these things, to stop the Sabbath, stop living like this. And they'd be swallowed up in whatever culture they had captured them. They truly believe these social structures... These things were given to them by the Almighty. And if they were to abandon those institutions, the ones about how to live and how to worship and who to marry and how you're supposed to dress and how you're supposed to act and what prayer you're supposed to pray and when you're supposed to go in and what you're supposed to do on Saturday, then they thought they'd be risked being damned to hell after death. These are beliefs they held on to for centuries. And by the time Jesus came on the scene, they were very content with these old traditions. The older an idea was, the more they loved it. This group did not like new concepts about serving God. And they were swift to punish anyone who would draw people away from what Moses gave them more than a thousand years before. Now, I named that countercultural for that section because I want you to get a sense of the culture that we're going to be counter against. You've got to understand what, what setting we're in for you know what we're turning against. So here's the radical change. Imagine, just try for a minute, off the paper, imagine some of your most cherished beliefs. Cherished beliefs. It's things you've held your entire life. Things you know are true. For instance, I've got a list of those, but things that there's no way possible you would ever change your mind. Never. And what if those, what would it take for you to change or give that up, to let loose of that? Especially if it's something you and your mom and dad, even your grandparents, held for decades. Examples could be that murder is evil, or that you should only marry one woman, or that your parents are good people. Or, like I told my kids, your parents were not spies and did not work for the FBI, even though I told my kids that we did at one point, but that's not true. It's a lie. Totally, it's not true. <laughs> it's not true. But, but, you know, these are things that you've held for your entire life. To find out, to be like, oh, no, I never knew. Now I understand. It would take a social earthquake, right, to let go of any of those. It would take a mental explosion for you to let go of that belief. Even if you knew without a shadow of a doubt that the previous belief was wrong, even if you knew without a shadow of a doubt that was wrong, that we don't pray to Mary. If you knew, if you figured out that was wrong, it would still be very, very hard to change that, right? especially from my family, I can see. I mean, generations of people. You're talking about, we don't pray to Mary? What? Generations. We're about grandpa and grandma, everyone that my mother knows. Everybody. Every cousin, every aunt, every uncle, everybody. Even the bad ones that don't, you know, that we were told, don't ask them about how they make their living. That they have, they make money and we don't know how and don't talk about it and don't ask them questions. You know, they even, those, those guys even prayed to Mary. I don't know what they did for a living. I don't know. God knows, you know, they didn't seem to work, but they seem to have a lot of money. I don't know. 
It's like, you know, um, my Uncle Junior had a friend named Corky. I'll never forget that. I always thought that was weird in my mind that his name was Corky, of all things. What's well, an adult man's name is Corky? Weird. But evidently, Corky had a simple job of just taking the truck that wasn't his and taking it over to somebody else and giving to them that wasn't his, and he got paid for it. I don't know any more about it than that. All I know is that he just moved it. He just got in a truck and just moved the truck over here, and it was full of stuff in the back, and then he got paid, and the truck was gone. That's all I know, except one day he got in a truck and he turned the key, and the ignition blew up. The truck blew up because Corky decided to keep some stuff for himself. He didn't keep all the, give all the truck away. That's what caught my attention, because I read that in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, that Corky, this guy who was known as Corky, turned the key and the thing blew up. And he survived. I don't know what his quality of life was afterwards, but he did survive. So I know there were people in my family that you weren't supposed to talk about what they did for a living, but they had some beliefs that even the bad ones would pray to Mary, right? Even the, bad, even the ones that were horrible would say a prayer to Mary. But to say that that's no longer true, wow, that's very, very hard to change. Now imagine your family held on to that idea or tradition for centuries, and everyone you know, friends, family, community, all hold strongly to it. How much power would that belief have on you? How strong an event would it take to change it? Do you understand this right here I'm talking about is one of the greatest evidences for the Christian walk we live right now. Think about it. If there was no resurrection, what would make these people change? <laughs> but because they said we have seen him with our own eyes, that changed things. Things that shouldn't change. Things that never change. A blue-collar working man, a rabbi from a lower-class region, he suddenly appears. He teaches for three years, has a following of young men, Later, he's followed by middle, lower and middle class people, gets in trouble with the authorities. His own family doesn't believe his message, and there are those that are the teachers, the important people, religious leaders, don't agree with what he says. He gets crucified, but along with 30,000 other Jewish men who were executed by Romans, both before him and many after him. That should have been the end of the story. After all, there were several men with the same name he had, there were many rabbis who taught things and were famous for a short time. And thousands of men who were crucified just the way he was. Should have been the end of the story. But five weeks or so after he's killed, there's over 10,000 Jews claiming they still follow him and they live in a new religion they say he started. Look at that. Something happened. Earthquakes like that don't happen without a reason. Explosions don't happen without a reason. That's an explosion right there. Something happened that caused that explosion. His own brother did not believe him and, tr and tried to stop what he called a madness. His own brother was embarrassed by his brother's troubles with the authorities. And John, after this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus, his brother, said to him, listen to the sarcasm in this. Find the sarcasm in these sentences. Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. Go. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, you see that? If you can do 
such wonderful things. Then show yourself to the world. And the writer says, for even his brothers didn't believe him. Suddenly, something happened. This half-brother is now one of the ringleaders of this new religion and seems to have lost his previous skepticism. James writes, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine what this phrase meant for James? The Lord of glory had once slept beside him, ate at his dinner table, played with his friends, spoke to him like a brother, and had endured his unbelief for all of his life. Something transformed that situation from skeptic to devout follower. He saw the risen Savior. One of the key accusations against Jesus and the leaders of this new church shows up time and time again after the resurrection. Acts 6.14, they say, For we have heard him say, we heard them say this. This Jesus of now just said, he'll destroy this place. And shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. See that change? You can underline that. Change the customs. That's the key thing. They're so afraid, upset. Matter of fact, any authority with the Jews would say, that's a reason enough to stop it. Change the customs. Another man who had been a perfect leader of the Jewish way of life then joined the very people he was pursuing. This guy was accused of the Jewish leaders of trying to destroy their religion and their sacred ways of life. This is Acts 9.21, by the way. I got the wrong uh, thing there. That should be Acts 9.21. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses delivered. But all that heard Paul were amazed and said, Isn't he the same guy? This is he that destroyed them, which called in his name of Jerusalem. He came to the city for that intent, that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. Wow. Goodbye to the past. Ostracized. Now here are the five major changes that the Jewish believers made. Changes were uncomfortable. That were uncomfortable. And forced these new believers to choose. Say choose. Choose between Family and faith. That sentence right there has, gives me pause and hurts my heart. Family and faith. I've never had to make that choice. There are people in this building that have had to make that choice. If I said today, today you, need to, you have to choose between your family and your faith, there'd be a lot of tears. Love our family. Love the people in our life. It would be a pulling, like a tearing from one side to the other, holding on to God and trying to hold on to our family. But imagine if that was the question today. You have to choose between your family and your faith, between everyone you know and love and your faith, and pray that they'll come back to it or maybe they'll accept you. But if it comes to it, you'll choose your faith. Think about it. That was today's choice. What agony and tears and hurt we'd have to endure and say, oh, God, help me to let that go. And between what was normal and comfortable and now what's strange and difficult, between the safety of just fitting in and not making a fuss or instead being possibly targeted, causing confusion and arguments, and eventually being persecuted and even chased from their homes and their jobs. 
How about that for a sales pitch? New Life is a great church. You'll love it. Come here. Get baptized with the Holy Ghost. You might get chased out of your house. And you might lose your job. But we'll be glad to have you. And your family may never talk to you again. But you'll want to come. <laughs> Think about that. That's, that's tough enough anyway. If you put that as a sales pitch, who's going to say, Oh, yeah, I'll sign. Sure. Where's the dotted line? I'll lose my home and my job, and I might lose my family. Let me come on over. You know what would have to be? You would have to have a very large reward to be able to make that trade. And it had to be very real. It couldn't be some pretend thing that someone and someone talked about or someone believed over there or maybe someone saw some vision. It had to be real. You have to actually see it. Have to actually be there in front of you. Have to be such a big reward that if it came to it, you would choose losing your family and losing your job and losing your home in order to get this reward. Think about that. What a what a what a cost that is. What a call that is. That's not that's not come and dine. That's come and die. That's not come and get. That's come and give up. But that's exactly what happened. There was a powerful call because there was a real Savior. They said, we've seen him ourselves, And there's 500 people plus that have seen him. And if you're going to make up the story, you wouldn't be so foolish to write it in there where people could read it and then go check it out. You wouldn't do that. You would make it so you couldn't check it out. You wouldn't put actual names of people that actually talked to him because you could go interview them. And that's what happened. Luke did that. He interviewed. Mark did that. He interviewed. Think about that. These are people that actually said, we have seen it with our own eyes. And we made that choice. If it has to be, and no human being wants it, but it has to be. And Paul was one of those that chased them out of their homes and they left their jobs and tried to run to find some place to survive. They literally had this experience. Oh, God. And I, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't, wouldn't want to put you to the test tonight. But think about that being a choice for your spirit. So here's the five changes. Ready? Number one, since the time of Moses, it was taught that animal sacrifice are necessary be given every year to cover their sins. God would put the sins, their sins, on that animal. And those sins would at least be rolled ahead so they could say, I'm in right standing with God. This is a bloody practice. It was foolishness to the Romans and would be really strange for new life to have it out here on the side. Okay, come everyone. We're going to put our hand on a goat. We're going to confess our sins. Then we're going to, the pastor will cut his throat. I mean, I'm sure that would be in the newspapers and every media. Oh my goodness. Church has gone crazy. They're killing animals. Imagine that. That's how, that's how the Romans felt about that. They had a continual line for centuries, a continual line of people offering daily sacrifices. Sacrifices for this sin, for this one, for this peace offering, for that offering, for this problem, for that situation. Someone didn't know and they did something wrong. They did something, they knew it and they, they got to take care of it this way. It was constantly. Now here's the change. Remember that countercultural? Remember that concept we talked about of ostracized? All of a sudden, these Jewish People are no longer offering sacrifices. They even believe it's not necessary because of the death of this Nazarene carpenter. Think about how that changes the whole scene. The people that sell the animals, there's at least 10,000 now. Thousands are more coming in the next few days. 
that are no longer buying them. Now we have people standing around saying, hey, we've got a lot of folks hired to do sacrifices and no one's coming. What's going on? They are destroying our way of life. Do you see how this, this is a big deal? To change that is, is hard to comprehend. Number two, Jews put special emphasis on obeying the laws given from God to Moses and entrusted them as a people. That was their special thing. Made them different from all the other pagans. That's why they looked down at all the other people. You're pagans. God's given us something to our father Moses, and we're holding on to that. This is how you live. But here's the change. Within a short time after the death of Jesus, a short time, Jews are saying that merely keeping Moses' law is not enough. There is something more you need to do to be pleasing to God. They begin teaching and following a new system of being right with God. What do you mean be baptized? I'm a Jew. I'm Jewish. This is my temple. What do you mean baptized? What do you mean the Holy Ghost? We serve the Holy Lord. The Holy God. He is our, there's no holy with the Holy Ghost. What about this new life thing? What are you talking about? You see how strange that would be? For hundreds of years, number three, Jewish people were extremely careful about keeping the Sabbath. And nothing, absolutely nothing can be done on Saturday except what was permitted for religious devotion. All food, everyone in here buys food. Every woman, especially every guy, needs to buy food. You want to buy food? You got to do it the day before. You got to prepare the food the day before. Everybody. No ordinary work was allowed, and the priests and scribes kept a vigilant search for anyone that would break the Sabbath. You know that because they got into Jesus. He was healing people, and they were watching out anything. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. We'll kick you out. You'll be kicked out of the community. You'll be excommunicated. This was a guarantee for the salvation of their family and how to be right with God as a nation. Look at the change. Look at this. These new Jewish Christians are starting now to worship on Sunday because they say that's when Jesus rose from the dead. And there's a 1,500-year tradition abruptly changing. You're on Sunday. What's this on Sunday business? That's when our Lord rose from the dead, they say. No, no, no. We got to keep the Sabbath. Talk about going the other direction. Number four, monotheism. The key belief for every Jew and every child could quote the Shema. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. That there's only one God. Every other religion had multiple, if not hundreds of gods. It would be an extreme heresy for someone to say that the person could be God and man at the same time. But here's the change. These followers of the way, as they called it, begin to worship this man Jesus as a God, as the God, as the all. Almighty God, this is radically different from what other Jews believed and would cause an argument and sometimes even a fight to mention this strange concept. Wow. Can you imagine that? I want you to see this and grasp it. Number five, the Messiah coming was taught for years. He will be a political leader. He'll destroy the Roman armies. Taught for years and years and years and years and years. Now here's the change. These Christians said the Messiah suffered and was hung in a tree. Even the, their Torah, our Old Testament, says that a person was accursed of God that hung in a tree. And he died for the sins of the world without killing anyone and didn't chase the Romans out of Israel. And they weren't concerned about chasing the Romans out. Oh boy. 
Lord, help us. I know we have responsibility. We have a responsibility to do what God wants us to do, responsibility to run for office, but let's not ever get so bound up with the mess our world is in that we become hateful or angry or believe it's our job as Christians to make our Romans behave better. There is a powerful gospel that works, whether it's, thank God, for the United States, or it works in Russia, or it works in Korea, both south and north. It worked when they were Roman rule. It worked wherever they're at, because there's a God that's bigger than the government, right? Somebody, come on, help me here. I know, I know we got to pray, we got to pray for our leaders and do what's right, but let's never get so bound up in all that that we forget who really is in charge, that there really is a real God. Oh, Lord, I, want, I just think about what they did. They didn't do what they're supposed to do. You guys just should be praying the Messiah will come and drive out the Romans. No, 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 he's already come. What a minute, what do you mean you've already come? Yeah, he died. He died. Did he kill anybody? No. Did he chase the Romans out? No. Are you guys interested in chasing them out? No. Well, then, uh, who are you people? I thought you were Jews like us. You see how that's a change? What a amazing countercultural change. This change wasn't easy. It truly caused lifelong friends and families to be divided. It je- they jeopardized their own well-being. And they really believed the risk was damnation to hell if they were wrong. It was not a choice of where to live or what to wear or what occupation to have. It was a big choice, a choice of life. Matthew, Jesus said it like this. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. The NLT says, your enemies will be right in your own household. If you love your father and mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you love your son and daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to give me a cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. In Luke, Jesus said, do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or two in favor and three against. They'll be divided, father from son, son from father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It wasn't Jesus doesn't want us to dislike people or hate people or mistreat people, but instead, if it comes to it, he says, you've got to love me more than you love anyone else. What a transformational thought. What a radicalization. What a difference from normal Christianity. That's, it's okay just to be a part of things and not make any waves or do anything that's crazy. Wow. So I asked myself this question. Why do the Jewish men wear the kippah or yarmulke? Yarmulke. And um, the 17th century rabbi David Havilava Siegel, the Taz, Suggested the reason was to distinguish, and that's the word for your blank, and that's because I want you to think of that word, is to distinguish Jews from their non-Jewish counterparts, especially while at prayer. Covering one's head by wearing this thing, the kippah, described as honoring God. According to the Jewish Community Center, it's the dress code for Jewish men, but not Jewish women. And that's not because Jewish women never bother covering their head, but because non-Jewish women always cover their heads. Until the last century, women across the world in almost every society covered their heads. 
Still today, in many insulated cultures, women still cover their heads. Uh, a head covering for Jewish women, therefore, never identified them as Jews and was never considered uniquely Jewish dress. Non-Jewish women, therefore, never identified... I'm sorry, non-Jewish men, though, rarely cover their heads, making the Jewish man's skull cap uniquely Jewish. The point is, not so much a thing about God. Really, I, it's not in the Bible. It wasn't, they knew it wasn't in the Bible. But the idea was to stand out for the rest of the world. Now, my mother-in-law and father-in-law went to Israel and bought me this. That's one of those. Now, it's probably not legit. I don't know if it is or not. I know when I looked online, there's all different colors, certain colors for certain versions of Jewish believers. And I even uh, searched, how do these things stay on if you don't have hair? I did. Now, amazingly enough, if I get it right there or seat it on the crown of my head, it's hard for me to get it to come off. Isn't that crazy? Look at that. Yeah, Lord, I hear you. I can really worship. And it, it's amazing. It doesn't come off. I don't know why. Now, they, they, there's three answers for bald guys that are Jewish. They say, is if I started taking this on, you'll know what I'll do. One is, you get a larger one, so it's kind of a bowl over your bald head. Two, they actually have little strips so you can like stereo strips on the inside, they'll kind of stick to your head and stick to the hat. And then the third one is the same um, adhesive that they use for like a toupee. Uh, you can get some, you can buy that. Now for the rest of you people that have, guys that have hair, which I'm sorry for you, but if you still have hair, because um, you're not part of the bald men's club, you didn't know that existed, but we're part of, we do all kinds of great things, but we don't tell each other mostly what we do. So you can, there's something, they have little, um, but Larry Wallace, if you want to get this later, you get a little, little thing that goes in your hair. They call it keeper clippers or, or keeper, keeper things. And you like, you'd pin them into your head. Now, what's amazing to me is Jewish men in every profession, um, teachers, um, commentators, um, those who are politicians, uh, those who work with their hands and uh, carpentry, bakers, plumbers, everybody you can think of, doctors, anyone, all wear these. And they wear them around the globe in every kind of location where it's not common for anybody else to wear. They'll wear it, uh, they'll wear it if they're on TV, they wear them. They wear them if they're working. They wear them in little Indiana rural towns. They wear them in big cities. And the biggest point is so that they stand out, that they're st- distinguished. You see? This would be, I'm sure, embarrassing for a while if we all started wearing this, guys. It would be the thing that would be different about us, I'm sure, that the whole church, there'd be a buzz in this community. You go to that church, you got to wear one of those yarmulke things. That would be very difficult, I'm sure. And the women would probably say, yay, finally, something you have to do that's strange and weird, and you have to think about every morning before you go out of the house, put on. Yay, we're glad for it, because we do stuff and you don't do anything. And I, I have felt that way before. I have felt that way. Lord, I can walk in any area, any business, any place. I can walk into any restaurant, any gas station, anywhere, any home, and they don't know anything about me because there's nothing about me that I wear that is different from the men of this world. Only thing I can think of is the Lord said, I would that men would pray everywhere, holding up, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. But something has to get a hold of us as a church. That radicalization has to change. Changing our very conduct. We're no longer okay with just 
not ruffling feathers, with not standing up, with just saying, let, let, let things just be. But literally becoming the church God called us to be. The point was that there was distinguished. Jesus says in Luke 14, before you start anything new, you should fit, first sit down and count the cost. There was and there is a heavy cost in being his disciple. What would have to happen for us to be radicalized, become those people that are no longer just talk about doing it, but actually do it, to be those that others are generally uncomfortable around and might even require someone to explain our strange ways. Wow. The pressures on society talked about that against radical Christianity. Those forces of the air, they push us to conform. Don't make waves. Be like everybody else. Get along. Be a Christian privately. Have your faith and don't let it cause trouble. But what's the Bible say? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Say bodies. That's your physical frame, your outside, your person. I know you have a spirit, but he didn't say spirit. Your bodies present this part, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that he may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen to this amplified version. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you in view of all the mercies of God. Who can say they've enjoyed the mercies of God in their life? Who can say you're only here because of the mercies of God? Who can say it's the mercies of God that kept you alive right now? In view of all those mercies of God to make a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all of your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God, which is your reasonable, that's rational, that's intelligent service and spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world or this age, fashioned after and adapting to its external, superficial customs, but be transformed, changed by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals, its new attitude, so that you may prove for yourselves what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. It seems to me that the more I dig into this, the more I think about it, the more I pray about it, that radical Christianity looks like the first century Christianity. That radical Christianity looks like what it's supposed to be. And I know that's the last blank, and I know I've just done the grave error of giving you the last blank, therefore your brains can shut off. I pray they don't shut off yet. Hold on a minute. Keep, the brain, keep your lights on for just a minute. I just, I feel like the Lord is calling us, calling me. And we're, we're in a world right now that's pushing against us, where the pressures of this world, every decision, every choice, every thing that would be normal entertainment or fun, it has somewhere in it some pressure against us. Do you know what I'm saying? Where it's a push, push against the things of God. It's just easier to just turn and just go downstream. But to make that decision, Jesus says, you're going to have to take up your cross to follow me, to be my disciple. It's going to cost you something. There's a cost. There's a cost to that. A cost to be the crazy person. The cost to be the, the weird one. The cost to be the person that they, they do weird things. They're strange they have a strange life. And that's not what our flesh wants. 
But that's what the Holy Ghost is calling us to do. And I'm just, I'm wanting you to stand with me right now, if you would, and be prayerful with me just for a few moments as the Lord talks to us, talks to you. Open your heart and your mouth right now. Father, talk to me. Lord, speak to me. Let your word have its effect upon me. Let the message you've curated and, and worked, Lord, into my mind, Lord. Let it really dig into my spirit, my life. Let it not be, Lord, a, a thing where we can just like a la carte take what we want to take from this, this life of following you and just hear a little bit and that a little bit, but let there be something, a whole heart devotion, a selling out, Lord Jesus, a truly being sold out, a truly being given over to the work of the Lord. I pray right now, Lord Jesus, take my words, Lord, every feeble word, and bless it, I pray, according to your gloriful, glorious ability. Bless it, Lord. Let your word transform our lives, our minds. That this church would be that radical Christianity, radicalized for the cause of Christ. I pray and I thank you, Lord, for these things in Jesus' name. Come on, someone, give the Lord a hand right now and thank him for his spirit being in this place. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Lord. I lift up my praise to you, Lord. I lift up my praise to you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I love you all. God bless you. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay healthy. Stay away from the flu.